0: Listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. If you go ahead, take your Bibles and find Colossians chapter 3, we're going to read from that chapter in just a few moments. I was thinking this week about the church that I grew up in, uh, and in so many ways, I, I'm just so very grateful for that church, so many ways that that, that church uh, just was instrumental uh, in who I am and informing uh, my faith and shaping my, my walk as a follower of Christ. But I was specifically thinking about the Sunday service. that that I experienced growing up. Uh, I I don't know about you, but every Sunday, uh, basically it was the same essential service. Uh, We would sing three hymns. It would be followed by uh, an offering, which would be followed usually by some kind of feature song or special music from either a soloist or uh, a duet or the choir. The preacher would preach, we do an invitation where another hymn was sung, usually just as I am, uh, I surrender all or softly and tenderly. Uh, those are the only three songs I ever remember being sung in the invitation time. For those of you who don't know, uh, invitation is a time where people could respond to the, to the gospel message or, 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 or followers of Christ could respond to what the Lord was doing in their heart and they'd be able to come forward and speak with the pastor. And, and while I thought... I, ne- I didn't consciously sit and make this decision, but I thought that's, that's, that's obviously what God decreed somewhere of what a service should look like. And as I got older, I realized, well, that's not written anywhere. Uh, and so there's some freedom in this. Um, but the thing that, I, as, I, as I think back on it, I never, uh, I never really asked the question, why do we even sing on Sundays? I just thought that's what you do. And at that time, there was, there, there was before you had a lot of these choruses that really started being generated in the 70s, all you had really were hymns, and there were some wonderful hymns and rich hymns. And, and for some reason in my church, if a hymn had four verses to it, you never sang the third verse. I don't know why, but you never sang the third verse. <clears throat> But even just thinking back to that, it never occurred to me to try to understand what is the role and what is the place of importance of singing in the gathered church? Have you ever wondered that? Why does the church sing when it gathers on Sundays? God's Word describes many instances where God's people are singing in praise, and they're rejoicing in song. But it doesn't just describe instances of this. It actually commands us. It prescribes that we sing when we come together. This morning, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 3 to help us understand the important role of singing in the church. So Colossians chapter 3, we're going to begin reading in verse 12. And read through verse 17. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, The word of the Lord. May we hear it and heed it. A few months ago, I preached the first part of this passage. So we're not going to to dive back into that. Uh, Those verses, verses 12 through 15 actually, uh, talk to us about the kind of relationships that we are to have as Christ followers. It talks to us about what should characterize our relationships. We talked about developing intentionally redemptive relationships. Not just casually being related, but we're intentional in developing redemptive relationships where we are persistently helping each other to grow in grace and to grow in faith. Intentionally redemptive relationships, according to what those first three or four verses, they're characterized by compassionate hearts. By kindness, by humility, by meekness and patience with one another. Where we bear with one another and we forgive one another. And above all things, we put on love. And then Christ's peace rules in our hearts and in our relationships because our calling, it says, is to be one body. Verse 16. Well, and and let me say before I get there. Uh, Pastor Phil talked about this collective that's coming up Saturday. Let me just kind of take a minute to give you a little bit fuller understanding of what that is. It's a collective that I will be teaching. We call it a care collective. That is how do we really care for one another? More specifically, because we're all in this situation. You meet with a friend or there's a coworker, or somebody in your family. They come, they, they approach you, they're hurting, they need help. How do you care for that person that's standing or sitting right in front of you? What are the things that we are looking for? How do we help this person grow in grace? If you want to know how to care for the people in your life, then you want to come to this collective on Saturday. So that's just a little, just a little blur about that to, to help you understand what the care collective is about. It's how do we actually have redemptive relationship? What does relationships, what does that really look like? So, Verses 12-15 through 15 are about these redemptive relationships. He kind of pivots in verse 16 here and, be, and begins to address the gathering of Christ's people. The gathering where these kind of relationships would be on display. So Paul tells us in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. In that verse, the central command is, the, is that phrase, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Or, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. It can be read either way. All the other commands come from and are based upon that key central command. Paul is saying in your gatherings you are to let the word of Christ to richly dwell among you. Okay? How does he say to do that? There are two ways and they are directly tied together. The first way is by teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom. Which leads directly into the second way by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. So hear this. The way the Word of Christ dwells richly in us is by teaching and admonishing one another through the songs that we sing together. The way this reads is not like teaching and admonishing is this separate thing. No, we teach and admonish one another through the songs that we sing. And when that is happening, the Word of Christ is dwelling richly among us. We are then to make sure that everything we do in our gathering, everything we do in our relationships is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pull this apart a little bit. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Or rather, again, let the Word of Christ richly dwell in you. Now, hear this. This is not directed at individuals. This is directed at the whole church. Now, while we certainly would want the word of Christ to dwell in us personally, the instruction here is for the community of faith. When Paul says the word of Christ, he is speaking of the truth concerning Christ. Now remember, they wouldn't have the scripture at that time. It was still being formed. The canon hadn't been finalized yet. They would have the Old Testament, but they would not have the new. So. What's he talking about? He's talking about what the apostles and what those first disciples taught concerning Jesus that was based upon all the Old Testament. You know, Paul, well actually Jesus if you remember, on his, on walking on the road to Himaeus after his resurrection, he encounters these two men, and these men are talking about all the events that had happened after after with Jesus' death, with his trial, his death, and and his resurrection, and and they were wondering what it all means. And Jesus walks alongside of them, and he gets to a point where where he he says to them, where he begins to, and the scripture says he 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 went to the the word, he went to the Old Testament, to, to the writings of Moses and the prophets and He showed them from that all things concerning Him. So they may not have had the final canonized New Testament, but they would have had the Old Testament where where it's all about Jesus anyway. Jesus said that to the religious leaders. He said, you search the Scriptures diligently, thinking in them that you might have life, but those those Scriptures point to Me, yet you refuse to come to Me that you might have life. So, so it's, it's, it's talking about what is the truth coming out of and based upon the Old Testament, but also furthering what it was that those first apostles taught the people and preached the, to the people concerning who Christ is, what Christ did, why Christ came, and what he taught. That would be what he's talking about here when he says the word of Christ. It's the truth concerning Christ. The Word of Christ is the truth again of who He is, why He came to earth, what He did, why that's important, what He said, and then what He taught. That is what is supposed to dwell richly among us. We understand that it was most likely Epaphras who probably started the church in Colossae, the ancient city of Colossae where this letter was written, or to whom this letter was written. And so Epaphras comes back from Colossae and he gives a report to Paul about some of the issues and some of the problems facing the church at Colossae. So Paul writes to them to address those issues. And the book of Colossians, listen, is about the absolute supremacy of Christ over all things. There were those in the church who were trying to erode the supremacy of Christ. They were trying to make Christ into a lesser person. Than he really was. So when Paul turns to address what is to happen in the gathering of Christ's people, he points them one more time to Christ. So he says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Now, to dwell, as you can probably know, it, it means you it take up residency, it's talking about abiding. It's talking about living in something. In other words, wherever you are, it is. It abides with you. It lives with you. If you gather, the Word of Christ gathers with you. It is to have that kind of role and that kind of place. There is never a time the Word of Christ is to be absent. The truth concerning Christ takes up residence among the people of Christ. That is what Paul is instructing here. Let it dwell among you. Let it live among you. Whenever you're together, let the truth concerning who Christ is, what Christ did, why he came, what he said, and what he taught, let that dwell with you. But then he goes on. He says, not just that it's dwelling with you, but that it is to richly dwell with you. This is a term that speaks uh, both to quantity and quality. The Word of Christ isn't on the periphery of our gatherings. It is front and center. For the Word of Christ to dwell richly in us means that the Word of Christ is the main influence on all that happens in the gatherings of Christ's people. It's not a side note. We don't tip our hat at it. It is primary. That is what Paul is saying. That when you come together, let the Word of Christ richly dwell among you. Again, the Word of Christ is to be in abundance in the gathering of Christ's people. In Colossae, There were those who were trying to diminish Christ, who were trying to make him into less than he really was. And Paul says, no, no, we're not going to have that. We can't go down that. And to counter that, we must have more of Christ, more of his word, more of his glories, more of his teachings. That must become more and more center and pervasive in the gathering of Christ's people. When we talk about worship, and worship's a big word, I mean, most people when they hear worship, they think about a service. But worship's much bigger than that, right? Worship's about everything we do. And singing in and the gathering is an expression of that. But when we talk about worship, whether it's personal or corporate worship, we must understand that it is the Word of Christ that goes first. Our worship... Is always a reflex to the revelation of Christ through the Word. Our worship is not proactive, it is reactive. When we hear our Lord speak, we then respond to Him. We don't speak first, He does. And when we are brought to Christ and His Word, we tune our hearts to respond according to what is being revealed to us about Christ and who He is and what He did. We are not the initiators in worship. God calls us to worship, and we respond to that. So we purposely seek to make the reading and reciting and praying and singing and preaching of the Word primary in our gathering. That is letting the Word of Christ richly dwell in us. We want the Word to drive all we do because it reveals Christ to us as the Spirit takes that Word and opens our hearts to the Word concerning Christ. Paul then moves on to talk about the ways the Word of Christ can dwell in us. He says, "...teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom." Teaching means to instruct. You're providing information about something. And in the context of the Christian life, you're providing information that's supposed to lead to transformation. Not just to greater knowledge, but to actually transformation. So when we talk about teaching, we're talking about instructing. We are helping each other to remember who Christ is. We're helping each other to remember what He did. To remember what He said. Because I know every week, if you're like me, it can be so easy to come and and feel like your life has somehow been disconnected from the Lord. Now, we don't believe that. That's not our theology because we know everything is connected to the Lord. But it's time, times we feel like that. We come and we feel disconnected. Or we feel like the, the stresses or the burdens or the distractions or the responsibilities of life. they just, they just pulling us away. And when we come together, we are teaching, we're remembering that our lives really belong to the Lord. We're helping remember who He is and what He did. We are also helping each other to understand more deeply who Christ is, to understand more deeply what He did and why He did it and what He said and what He instructs and what He requires. This is teaching. It is instruction. Paul then talks about admonishing, that we are not only to teach one another, we are to admonish one another. Admonish carries like a sense of warning with it, but in a positive sense, like an exhortation, like an urging. We urge each other towards Christ. Admonishing means we are helping each other basically to delight in who Christ is and what Christ did and why he came and what he said. So we are teaching and we are admonishing, and we do all of this in wisdom. We are looking for ways to be effective in instructing and admonishing. But we would be wrong to separate teaching and admonishing from what's coming next. And that's what people tend to do. We are teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Teaching and admonishing is taking the form of songs that we sing together and that we sing to each other. In this passage, singing is how we obey the command to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in us. When we sing, we are in essence teaching and admonishing one another in Christ and toward Christ. It's interesting. There uh, is no real consensus that I could see among biblical scholars on what those three individual words for songs, what they mean. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There are some people, interesting enough, who argue that all three of those categories are basically just referring to psalms, like from, from the book of Psalms. Many people who hold to this also believe that the church should only sing psalms from the book of Psalms. I, it's, I just can't get there. I can't accept that that's what this is about. That, that's what Paul is actually saying here. He uses three distinct words. Um, when if all he wanted to do was to say, just sing the psalms, he would have said that. Whatever, whatever is meant by these kinds of songs mentioned here, they all must exalt Christ and praise our Savior. They all must be truth concerning Christ. Because they are how the word of Christ dwells richly among us. So let's look at these, these three categories for songs here. As already mentioned, Psalms, it's, it's referring to the book of Psalms. It's referring to what we have. And there's just a, a wonderful treasure. We, we did a mini-series through Psalms this summer. And there are so many wonderful psalms there. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But he talks about hymns. Hymns would be songs that are crafted as praises to the Lord. They're crafted as praises to the Lord. We know from Acts 16 when Paul and Silas were in prison, that in the middle of the night they were singing hymns to God. Paul tells us, gives instruction about further about the things that happened in the gathering of the church back over in 1 Corinthians 14. Says, when you come together, you have hymns. You're coming to sing hymns. You're coming to, that's part of the gathering of the church. There's an expectation of coming to the gathering to sing hymns together. These are praises that have been crafted, songs of praise that have been crafted that exalt the Lord spiritual songs would be songs that the spirit gives that exalts Christ these may be songs that the spirit might give in the moment that are fresh that are new but these certainly would be songs that the lord gives to his people in every generation i, I please please hear this i love hymns i love singing hymns there's so many it's just such a rich rich content that that we we're not just Inventing the the wheel ourselves in every generation. We have this incredible treasure trove of what God has done in generations before us. That they pass on that we can benefit from if we're humble enough to receive that. But having said that, the scripture also says repeatedly that we are to sing new songs to the Lord. We are to sing new songs to the Lord. Here's just a sampling of that. Psalm 33, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Psalm 40, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Psalm 96:1, O oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Psalm 98.1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He's done marvelous things. Psalm one: Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 42, verse 10, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. And we get a glimpse, when we get into to, to Revelation, we get a glimpse of what's coming in the throne room of God. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And again in Revelation 14, verse 3, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures. Here's why this is important. New songs are fresh expressions of the grace and mercy of God we see in our lives and we continue to experience. David Mathis wrote on uh, the Desiring God website, he wrote wrote this, New songs of praise are appropriate for new rescues and fresh manifestations of grace. As long as God is gracious toward us, as long as he keeps showering us his power, showing us his power and wowing us with his works, it is fitting that we not just sing old songs inspired by past, by his past grace, but also that we sing new songs about his ever-streaming, never-ceasing grace. And this isn't just true in this age, but for eternity. God will never cease to inspire awe in us about the breadth and depth and height of who He is and His mind-boggling love for us in Christ. And we get the joy of continuing to create and sing new songs of praise to Him for it. So psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are... To help the word of Christ to dwell richly among us. These are the songs that are to fill our minds with clear and compelling truths of Christ. These are the songs that cause our hearts to swell with joy at the glories of our Lord and at the glories of the cross. So with that as the context. Let's take the remainder of our time and see if we can tease out some of the practical implications of this verse for the church today and for our church. The first implication. Truth must drive our songs. Truth must drive our songs. Truth must be the first and most important criteria of every song we sing. It must be the word of God concerning Christ that we are singing why is this important because the songs we sing become part of the doctrine that we believe one of the reasons I came to be part of Sovereign Grace churches this family of churches is because of their music that's how I found Sovereign Grace for my church my past church where I was I wanted our church to be able to sing songs that have doctrinal grit to them and I love the old hymns, but I also wanted contemporary songs as well. But I found out that so much of the contemporary stuff seemed to be more music-driven than truth-driven. And the songs, too, often had little depth to them. Not all of them, that would be a way huge overstatement. But many of them, and oftentimes the most popular ones, too often they obscured the glories of Christ in the work of redemption. Too often they didn't even point to Christ. They could have been sung in a synagogue. My church needed songs that had that had doctrinal integrity, yet were joyous to sing because music matters. Christ wants his people to sing. So it does matter, but it must come second. It must serve the truth of who Christ is. And so as I began to see some of the songs we really liked, I began to notice on many of those songs was the same copyright, which is now the copyright for Sovereign Grace Churches. You see, songs teach us about God. They teach us about who He is. They teach us about what He does, about what He, He wants. And if the songs we sing are theologically shallow, or worse, theologically off, people will be trained in that error. Family, this is why our songs must clearly be about Christ. We need songs that point us to the Word of Christ. We need songs that fill us with the hope because of Christ's promises. We need songs that vitally and directly connect us to the great salvation in Christ. We need songs to point us to the hope of Christ's resurrection. We need songs that keep us looking for the return of Christ. We need songs that help us believe in Christ, that develop deeper understanding of Christ, and that promote deeper affection for Christ. And our songs need to be overtly clear about the truth of Christ and the Gospel. Not just hints, but overtly, over-the-top, clear that we know what we're singing. Singing songs where lines are ambiguous or confusing only brings ambiguity and confusion into the hearts and minds of the people who are singing. There There are so many popular songs, and I get it. I hear them. I like the song. But when I'm listening to it, I'm like, I have no idea what this song is saying about Christ or the gospel or about even God. What do I do with that? Now, this isn't to say that every song has to give us all truth concerning Christ. I mean, that's impossible for one song to do. (laughs) But it is to say that what it does tell us of Christ must be true and accurate to Christ. There may be some songs that come up short in giving us the full gospel, yet they can still point us toward Christ. That is where a helpful worship leader, a music song leader can verbally make the connections for us. Josh did a great job this morning just saying, who's like our God? No one. Just that kind of thing. It helps us to connect things. You know, my church back in in Buffalo, we sang a song uh, based on Psalm 15. It is almost literally lifted straight from Psalm 15, which is one of the things we're supposed to sing. It's called Your Holy Hill. I love the song. And I would sing it again. Here's the words. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks in integrity. All his works are righteousness. He who speaks the truth deep within his heart and does not slander with his lips. It is a wonderful, singable song, but it is wholly void of Christ and the gospel at the same time. So why would we sing that? We would sing that because we would verbally connect Christ and the gospel to it. That's what a worship leader does. A song leader helps in or a pastor helps in. So I would say something like, we sing this song with confidence that we can abide with the Lord on his holy hill because Christ sacrificed himself on another hill in our place for our sin. you can, you got to connect Christ to these things. When we sing, we want the word of Christ to richly dwell in us. We want our songs to help us understand Christ, to understand who He is and what He did. We want our songs to promote deeper affection and greater delight in our Lord. That's how we're teaching and we're admonishing one another. Second implication. It is the congregation that matters most, not the musicians or the singers. Let me tell you, I I am so very, very grateful for the people God has led to our church who are musically trained, musically gifted, and they're humble of heart, and they lead us every Sunday. It is a real gift to have people who, it's not about their ego. It's not about their skill. They're here to serve the body. That is a real gift to the church. And we pray that that, that, that God would continue to bring people, that that team would grow, and there would be more people, more instruments involved, you know, it's not a value that we think you should just sing with the guitar. That's all we sing with usually. But we would love for, for a piano player. We love for drums. We would love for, a, I would love, okay, I'm sorry. I would love a cello player. I, I love cello. And I think just for some songs, it's just, it's hard to beat that. So we want that to grow. But, but listen, the thing that I so appreciate about the people who lead worship, they know it's not about them. Their skills, their training, it is to serve the Word of Christ dwelling richly in us. It is to serve what God is doing through the Word among His people. They come to serve Christ's purpose and work. Sundays are not a time to display their musical or singing abilities. Sundays are gatherings to exalt and magnify Christ. So they come with that purpose. And this is also why, because it's about the congregation. It's not about the musicians or the singers. This is why we try to find songs that are singable. There's another reason why I like Sovereign Grace Churches. Why they've been so helpful. And again, I recognize there are many other churches and ministries that are writing really good songs that are Christ-centered. I'm not at all. But I know this, this was something I, I, I found. And it just drew me because I wasn't finding it any other place 25 years ago. It is a strong value that Sovereign Grace Churches produces and writes music that is meant to be seen congregationally. Every song is vetted with that in mind. We know it is so important that when the church gathers, it is singing. That is the test. Can the whole church sing this? They aren't writing songs for soloists, although some of these can be uh, be sung as solos. They write songs for the people of Christ to sing to Christ the truth concerning Christ. Here's what I mean by singable. Songs are written with the average layman in mind, not the gifted singer or musician in mind. These are the songs we need for gathering. These are the kinds of songs that will promote the Word of Christ dwelling in us richly. So the songs are written in a key that people can sing in. Have you ever been someone launched into, and it was obviously the, the music guy was the one who, was, who chose it, and his octave was way up here, and everybody screeching, screeching to try to keep up, when you can't. We want to sing songs that everybody can sing. With keys that are not too high or not too low, you know. Both of those we find difficulty. These songs are to be written so that the rhythms are not overly complicated and people aren't thrown off by difficult syncopations. You know, I've jokingly shared this before, but it is true. There are some people, and it it is absolutely appropriate, sometime when a song is upbeat and to clap with it. If that happens and you're clapping, you'll look at me and I won't be clapping. It's not because I think it's wrong. It's because I am rhythmically challenged. I kid you not. I cannot clap and sing at the same time. I cannot clap on the beat. My son, who is a drummer, just just has a hard time with this because I start clapping and apparently I clap on the offbeat. It all sounds the same to me. He's like, no, Dad, that is, you know, I, I'm worried for your soul, you know. But syncopations that are complicated and it's like, where do I sing and where's the next word coming? And what's happening next? And I'm not sure. It brings it brings us caution among the people where they're not engaged with the truth. They're worried about the song. Songs are also written where the melody is the primary thing that comes through. Harmonies are awesome. I love to hear our harmonies. Rhythms are compelling. They grab our attention. They're wonderful. They serve Christ. But it is the melody where most people in a congregation sing. And those who are leading worship serve that melody. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Essentially the same thing he says in Colossians 3. We are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Listen, that that that's what the songs need to be about. So the congregation can sing them. Now, let me say this. We know that our church sings songs that often, especially new people, have not heard, and it's not part of of their experience. We recognize that. We don't do different songs to be different for different sake. We sing the songs purposely that we do because they help us to let the Word of Christ richly dwell among us. And as we grow as a congregation, we will learn these songs and sing them together even as we have learned the older songs at one time. They were new on the scene too. We do this so people... Can be able to sing we have recently just started sending out the song list i hope you get that if you don't get that let us know we want to make sure you get that that it's part of your own personal worship you can just take time to sing with us to worship to learn the song so that when you come you're you're just letting loose with your brothers and sisters and exalting and magnifying Christ. It is the congregational singing that matters most. Third implication. We sing to one another even as we sing to God. We sing to one another even as we sing to God. First and foremost, we are singing to God. Paul says we're singing with thankfulness to God. We are directing our affections and our attention to God in response to understanding of Him and what He has done through His Son, Jesus. And let me, let, let me take just one minute and make sure we're clear about what God has done for, his son through, for us through His Son, Jesus. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have eternal life. This is the news we announce each Sunday of what God has done for us through His Son Jesus, who came to give His life a ransom for many. He died in our place for our sin so we could be forgiven and restored to the Father. You know what we call that? The gospel. It is the good news concerning what God has done. And with the announcement of the gospel is the need for you to hear it, to confess your sin. To repent of your sin, to turn away from it, and to turn to Christ in trust and belief. That's what we're talking about, about the word richly dwelling, about what God has done for us. It's in that simple truth that God sent his Son to die in our place, to pay for our sins. He took our sin, died our death, he gives us his righteousness and his life. On Sunday morning, We must remember this. The congregation is not the audience for worship. The audience for worship is the Lord God. We are the worshipers. The music leaders help us to do that well. Help us to be the ones who are actually, in a sense, performing. Though that's a bad word, I know. But we're the ones who are worshipers. We're the worshipers. It's not what's happening down here. It's what's happening in the congregation. The Lord is the one who is watching and engaging We are the worshipers. Our worship is first directed to the Lord. But the verse says also that we are singing to one another. Ephesians 5 says the same kind of thing. That we are to not be drunk with wine. We're to be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Addressing one another. In Ephesians, Paul says we are addressing one another. In Colossians, Paul says we are singing to one another. When we come to the gathering of Christ's people, each Sunday, our purpose is to let the Word of Christ dwell richly among us. So we are singing together, and as we're singing, where our hearts are engaged, we're singing, this is true, this is life, this is what God is all about. And our singing urges others to accept the truth, and to believe it, and to hold it, and to press on in it. When brothers and sisters hear, they look around the full-hearted singing of their fellow brothers and sisters, they are encouraged. Hearing voices raised in joyful praise to Christ stirs our hearts, and it engenders faith. We want our voices to be heard when we sing. We don't want to drown out the voices. Sometimes music is so loud you can't hear the people. It's about what's going on in among the people, not what is happening in the singers with the mics and the instrumentations. They all serve the congregation. We don't want to drown out the voices. We don't want to turn down the lights. We want to see everybody. We want want to be engaged as a congregation. And we don't have to have beautiful voices. I feel sorry for those who sit in front of me while we sing because they have to hear my voice, and it's not good. Fortunately, my wife sings beautifully, so maybe that covers it. It's not about having a beautiful voice. It's about having a voice. A voice that is used to sing to Christ. So we sing to one another even as we sing to God. And final implication. We sing songs to direct and engage our hearts. We sing songs to to direct and engage our hearts. We are told to sing songs with thankfulness in our hearts. That's what Ephesians 5 says. Singing and making melody with the Lord with your heart. The heart is the center of you. When the Word of God uses the word heart, it's talking about who you essentially are. So we are being told, this is a total engagement of all we are. And the worst thing we can do is mouth words just because we think that's what we're supposed to do. You know, one of the charges that Jesus had against the religious leaders in His days, He said this, Actually, quoting Isaiah, he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What was coming out of their mouths wasn't coming from their heart in that sense. Please understand this. The Lord God does not need our worship. He's not waiting on our worship to to act. He isn't starved for our attention. He isn't hurting for our affection. Worship is for us. Worship is a gift God gives to us. Because we need it. He doesn't need it. Worship is for us that we might enjoy Him, that we might be aligned to Him, that we might understand that He is the greatest good in all the universe. There's nothing better. And even as you would come to the, to the rim of the Grand Canyon and you would look out and you would be overcome by what you're seeing, when we come and we behold Christ and we behold God, we're overcome by Him. Yes, the Lord is pleased with our worship because He loves us. But when we come and our hearts are far away, and yet we mouth the words, the Lord knows that. Just going through the motions of a Sunday worship service serves very little good. We are to sing with thankfulness in our hearts. We are to make melody to the Lord in our hearts, who we are, engaged with that. This speaks to a wholehearted effort in singing to the Lord. Now, some of us may think, I'm not going to sing a song because I don't feel that way right now, or this has been a bad way, or singing isn't fully, singing those things, it's not fully true in my life. Listen, we're always in process. There's always a sense where we're, where we're not all we could be, we're not all we should be, but we're not what we once were either. That, that we're always somewhere in that tension between growing in grace. And we can look back and say, yeah, I used to struggle, and that's not a, the Lord did that in my life. But we can look and say, yeah, there's some other struggles. So we are always in process. When we sing... Listen, we are not just engaging our hearts, we are directing our hearts. We are saying, heart, awaken to this truth. Heart, give yourself fully to the truth concerning Christ. This is one of those times, you hear us talk about this around here, this is one of those times we need to stop listening to ourselves and start talking to ourselves. We awaken our hearts to the word of Christ, who He is. And singing songs of truth can help us align our heart to those truths. And we can say, we may not feel that way right now, and that's an honesty. Saying, I'm not there, I, I, I feel like I screwed up in this area, I, I don't know that, I, but Lord, I confess that. And, and I can then engage wholeheartedly, just being honest with integrity. I may have fallen short. I may not feel that way, but I confess that there is a greater truth there. And that truth is the truth concerning Christ. And it is the gospel that is my hope. This is also why we sing some songs more than once. Or we sing, we'll repeat a chorus. Or we'll repeat a verse. It isn't just because we think there's something magical in redundancy. It's because sometimes it takes a while for the heart to engage with it. So we sing it again. And sometimes we sing it and we come back around. And we are able to, yes, and we are able to fully express it. Please please know this. We do not plan our Sunday gathering to get a certain emotional response from people. We plan a Sunday gathering to exalt and magnify Christ and then let Christ's people respond to Christ. And part of that will be emotion. But it's not driven for that or by that. Bob Coughlin you don't know who that is, you need to, to become familiar with him. He is, the, he is the, the leader of Sovereign Grace Music, and he is the one who, is, who God has used to shape so much of this. In his book, Worship Matters, which is just a wonderful book for anybody to read. It's geared towards worship leaders, but it's just a wonderful wonderful book. He says this, Magnifying God's greatness begins with the proclamation of objective biblical truths about God but it ends with the expression of deep and holy affections toward God. We aren't simply reciting facts about God like students reviewing their multiplication tables. God wants us to delight in Him. He is exalted when all our energies are directed to one end, being satisfied in who He is. The engagement of the heart in worship is the coming alive of the feelings and emotions and affections of the heart, John Piper writes. Where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. Scripture repeatedly teaches and models the fact that that truth about God invites a response. In fact, we are commanded to respond. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. Love the Lord with all your all you his saints. Serve the Lord with gladness. We sing songs to engage and direct our hearts. Those are just four implications. I I actually had about ten, but we don't have time to do all that. And there are so many other aspects to our Sunday gathering because worship isn't just singing. Everything we do in our gathering is meant to be an act of worship. The call to worship, the time of confession, welcoming, greeting one another, praying together, taking communion, hearing the Word. It's all expressions of worship. But this sermon this morning was about why we sing and what that means for us as we gather. It is to detail for us how, when we sing, we let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly as we are teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. May our church always grow in singing songs that exalt and magnify Christ.